Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Who are the best people to act on climate change? Do you need to be a climate scientist, some kind of expert, work for an NGO, be a politician? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Claire O'Rourke. Claire is the daughter of a coal power station worker who now works as a climate campaigner, and she's written a powerful book called Together We Can. It features over 70 stories of everyday people and how they are taking on the challenge of climate change in their communities. Today, we talk about her journey from journalism to activism to her own process of confronting the climate crisis, all of which created the conditions for this book. We look at the challenges of getting started with climate action, the issue of climate distress, and consider what makes climate action most powerful. As we recorded this episode, Claire was on Daryl Land, and its beautiful birds were chirping in the background. Enjoy them as you listen along. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Claire O'Rourke, welcome to Changemakers. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. It is my pleasure. We always begin these podcasts asking our wonderful guests about what makes them a changemaker. So Claire, tell us what you do in the world to create social change. Mm, It's such an interesting question and thank you for asking it because it's made me actually spend a bit of time trying to think about it. You know, often when you're changemaking, you're kind of running from the one thing to the next thing, but the thread over a couple of decades working in various different movements and forms of social change is essentially about enabling people. And anyone who's working on social change or community organising knows that the work of that organising is fundamentally relationship-based. But it's also about, you know, guiding and coaching people so that the skills that you have don't just sit with you forever. They are, you know, they are spread. And I think it's kind of grounded in a belief for me that, you know, people in our society should have the ability to contribute to what that society looks like. They should be able to shape it. They have a stake in it. They have a voice in it. And what we do as organisers and campaigners and communicators in this work is to kind of organise people to create the conditions for really large shifts because we are consolidating that energy. We are consolidating people power. That's probably what I'd say. It's kind of meta, but I also think (laughs) that the way I do it is, you know, just storytelling, connecting, relationship building, um, you know, and that can be very small scale or very large scale. But I think everybody has a story and everyone has a voice, which is 
fundamentally what I believe is required for our, our society become, to become more equal, for us to heal the problems in our world. You know, all of the things that are required for us to have, you know, healthy, strong, um, vibrant lives. And that stretches across all communities. I think it's just part of my value set. Yeah, yeah. And stretches across all issues as well is what I'm hearing you say. It's actually about people being able to speak into what they need for themselves and their family and their communities, whatever their concerns, whatever the crisis or all the smaller concerns that they're facing at the time. That's absolutely right. And it kind of comes from um, my grandmother who was has very, well, she had very different views to me in terms of the issues, but she was always very engaged in um, civic movements. So she was on the local planning committees. She was involved in the, you know, the anti-abortion movement, which is an interesting area of diversion for us. And she always knew who her local MP was. She was always visiting her MP and engaged with the local council. You know, she was political. I lived with her for my first year of university. So I'd moved from my hometown to Sydney and we used to have raging arguments about the issues. But um, when she was coming to the end of her life, she, she said to me just as she just a few days before she died in hospital that she said, well, I got up on my soapbox and you got up on yours, but at least you got up. And, you know, it's those kinds of lessons, I think, uh, during formative years that a lot of changemakers share. You either have a big win or a big influencer that makes you realise the importance of playing a role in civil society. And coming to points of common ground without sacrificing your principles, your values or the ambition that, you know, you and others share for the kind of society we want to create. And even if the issues were counterpoint, right, you thought differently to your grandma, but what you learn is the power of actually standing up and contributing. There's such power in that. I mean, you've mentioned your hometown. I'm sure there's a lot in your journey that speaks to why you've become the change maker you are. Let's go there, right? Let's go to the question, why have you chosen to uh, develop the particular kind of political work? Were you supporting leaders, teaching, creating change in others and respecting their space to lead? Where has this come from? for you. Let's go there. Let's hear your origin story, the magnificent story about why you're the change maker that you are. Well, I live at the moment on Durrawal country, which is just north of Wollongong on the eastern coast of Australia. And it's a beautiful environment that we live in. The Durrawal is actually the cabbage palm, which is, you know, part of this dry escarpment rainforest. But Wollongong has a really rich industrial history. And I've lived in this region for almost 20 years. But I grew up on a Wabakal country, which is around Lake Macquarie, which is north of Sydney in the Newcastle region, which is the core of the kind of coal and coal power regions in this state. And um, my father was a coal cadet, like he was a cadet, university trained coal power worker and became a project manager in the industry. His entire career, if you like, is powered by coal. And, you know, when I was a teenager, we'd go and jump in the outlets at one of the power stations, which I never told my father about. And when he read about it in in my book, he said, he said, you know, that's like, yeah, yeah. He, he didn't know about it because you don't, when you're a teenager, you don't tell your parents very much. But also he's like, you know, it's not actually very healthy to jump into the outlets from a power station. And we just thought it was warm water and we, that would flow into. And I um, love Lake that he Lake. knew. He knew the complexity of the space. The, the costs of, you know, what it takes to produce electricity using fossil methods is, you know, is, is accepted by the industry because it's necessary for our um you know, our communities to work, our, you know, transport, our economies to work. 
But um, I also remember when I was about eight years old, we would um, we went on a tour of Araring Power Station, which is one of the biggest coal-fired power stations in the country, and, you know, no hard hats, you know, just crawling up all through oh, the yeah. power station. So, you know, the kind of means of producing energy has been a big part of my family's story. It's also enabled the enormous privilege that I have in my life. So, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, healthy family to grow up with, you know, supportive parents, you know, a large family. I'm the eldest of five children. But, you know, we've always had coal power as part of our, our lives and a bit of gas and a little <laughs> bit of hydro, sure. you know, as that's what dad worked on. Um, so that's a big part of my story. And I never thought I'd be working on energy per se, but I think one of the most interesting conversations I ever had was with a change maker, Lindsay Suter, who founded Solar Citizens, a renewable energy advocacy group that I, you know, led for a little while. And my first conversation with Lindsay, because I'd worked in disability and human rights and the union movement in Australia, and a little bit through the Asia Pacific region up to that point. And I was really worried about climate change, but I wasn't really sure about where's a good point of intervention on that work. And I remember Lindsay and I were having dinner at one of the progressive civil society conferences that we have in Australia, and she was talking about the solutions that are available on climate in Australia right now and the immense resources. And my first question to her was, what about baseload? Don't we need baseload power? And so- I that, yeah, love your knowledge of the electricity I just industry. knew that because of my history and story, um, you know, around coal. And, and so that began a process of educating me around the alternatives and how we can actually completely re-engineer that technical system and all the regulations and policy and funding around it to actually create a lot of opportunity for our country and our economy if, you know, development is happens faster and fairer. So, you know, I guess I never thought I'd be back working on energy or energy advocacy ever. You know, my, I'm a, you know, writer and communicator and storyteller first, a generalist, long live the generalist. And, um, and dad would try and explain to me how turbines worked and things. And I'd just try not to listen to it because I didn't want to do that. I want to go and work in the arts or writing or whatever. But here I am. I've, I know a lot more about the electricity sector and it's quite easy to learn, you know, for, for the generalist. It makes me think you're like the prodigal daughter, right? Like you've returned to, to the space of energy, but this time with renewables. Well, and interestingly, my, my father retired from work a couple of years ago and just about the time that all the coal-fired power stations start, you know, bringing forward their own retirement dates. So it's kind of an interesting personal, you know, family metaphor for the way the electricity system in, in Australia has evolved. So it's fundamentally one of the most important sectors to decarbonise as quickly as possible. And once you look at what's required, the choice about where you direct your energy as a change maker for me was really quite straightforward. So you've written this extraordinary book, Together We Can, everyone should go read it. It's full of extraordinary stories of people making change around the country. But before we get into that, you've you've been in the climate space for a while, solar citizens, you've also done other advocacy. All this time in the climate space, a decade, the preceding time for the book, what has been what has it been like being in that climate space and what has that time taught you? Oh, interesting. So once people have their climate moment, which is something I certainly discovered through the book, everyone has a climate moment of transformation and it's often comes with a lot of fear guilt, grief, anxiety, but that 
um, people can either get stuck in that or they can go through a process of transformation. I actually personally went through my own kind of climate freakout moment after I'd been working on climate for a while because you can work on solutions and you can bat off what's at stake and what's coming pretty easily, actually. People, humans are quite good at compartmentalising their emotional reaction to climate change sometimes. But I did have my moment around the black summer bushfires in early 2020, just before the pandemic. I've been working on climate for the most part of about eight years before then. And so one of the lessons I learned after going through a structured program of processing those emotions was being kind of clearer on the role that I wanted to play. You know, I work at the Sunrise Project at the moment and you have incredible privilege working in an organisation that has a vantage point across um, a diverse and evolving social movement. And I saw so much to feel hopeful about, even though I was terrified and still am. And what I didn't see is anything for people who were feeling similar, uh, having a similar emotional reaction to me, something that could actually give them a bit bit, bit of hope while not shying away from the challenge so that they could build their motivation. And at Sunrise, we run a project called um, Climate Compass in 2020, and we refreshed that in 2022, which was a, a, a social research project that looked at Australian attitudes to climate change, what behaviours they were you know, adopting or not adopting just yet, but open to doing, and then what the barriers were. And what was really striking in that research is that it exposed that about a quarter of Australians were just as freaked out about climate change as I was, which is millions and millions of Australians, about 5 million Australians or so. Yeah, so people are really worried about climate change. They're open to taking part in a wide array of pro-environmental behaviours, but the barriers are it feels too hard for those people. It Like there's a lot of choice about where you can engage And also people don't know how to talk about climate change. They feel like they need to be a climate scientist or they need to, you know, be a politician or an energy nerd to be able to make sense of it because it has been a highly politicised and highly toxic debate in this country. And so I thought practical examples of people who are relatable across different sectors would provide some hope and motivation, but then also get us thinking about what our role could be. And everyone has a unique role to play in this mission because every job's a climate job. Every conversation soon is going to be a climate conversation. Every investment's a climate investment. Every choice we make will either help accelerate the solutions on this issue or it will accelerate the problem. And so we've all got that concept of clear choice that we talk about in social change is very clear for me and I wanted to be able to provide some pathways and ideas for people so that they could engage. And I I think you're right, you know, um, people should go get the book, right? It's a really inspiring read. One of the things, though, that sets it apart is there's plenty of books in the climate space. You know, I think of of Craig Rucastle's book and documentary. We had Craig on the program previously and Naomi Klein has written here too. But what is different about your book, Claire, is you're on the ground in this. You are a climate change maker, um, a climate activist, and you are talking with other people doing that work. And there's something profoundly grounded that comes from your perspective. And what that leads to is a really practical book, a book full of beautiful stories. You're a journalist. You bring that to the table. But there's also a sense you know, a very real grounded sense that climate change is something that we can all do something about. You don't need to be a, a politician. You don't need to be famous. That actually anyone, everyone can do something about this. 
So, so let's get into the book. Let's get into some of, some of your findings. So the book is called Together We Can. So I guess my first question is, what are we, what are the people that you've looked at? What, what are people doing? What are people doing to make change? It's so utterly inspiring what's going on around Australia because, you know, if there's millions of people freaking out, there's millions of people, you know, reaching that moment of clear choice. So there's about 75 interviews that formed the book and loads of case studies from across all sectors, well outside of the energy sector, because I wanted to have a look at what else was going on outside of my own kind of area of, um, you know, focus at the moment. And so, for example, there's a story of Julia Reiser from Ulu. She's a marine biologist, WA-based, Western Australia-based, who's inventing a new form of um, material to replace all plastic. It's made completely from freshwater and seaweed processes and can biodegrade completely even in the ocean. I talked to fund managers who are guiding, like, billions of dollars into credible importantly credible but also climate positive investments. I chatted to the Hunter Jobs Alliance. Um, so that's a collaboration of unions, environmental organisations and local groups that are working to ensure that workers and communities thrive through the accelerating shift away from fossil fuels. I spoke to Anjali Sharma, who's one of the school strikers from the global school strikers movement, and she was, in year, um, she was in year 12 when I spoke to her, but she'd taken the nation's environment minister to court over the duty of care that the federal government had around young people in terms of approving fossil fuel projects, and she won. And a beautiful story, a guy called Alan Hyde, who's based in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, and he's retired. He's a former scout leader, and he's building fire resilience by reforesting properties on Mount Irvine in the Blue Mountains on Gunungurra country, he's reforesting them with rainforest, you know, getting property owners around him to dedicate 10% of their property to reforestation, but he's setting it up as a model that can be scaled. So there are so many stories about people who are making these choices across all sectors that just are so inspiring. It's just incredible what people are doing because they're going through that moment of decision. They are making a choice and looking around their local community or their local networks and asking, what can I do? What contribution can I make? Yeah. So it was, it's a, a bit of a cook's tour, really. One, one conversation led to another conversation. So it's definitely not comprehensive. There's so much more going on. And what I do like about the book is that after having told all these very specific stories in the last chapter, you then break down the process that many of these people have gone through to get to this place, almost like you're setting yourself up to inspire other people to do similar things and then you can write another book about it. I'm looking forward to that. And in this way, it's it's not just a, a page turner. The book is also a call to action. It's, it's an invitation to the reader to what are you going to do? What are we going to do together? What I also like about the book is that it's not just an invitation to take action on climate change because the planet's at stake and things are dire, even though that is all true. It's also a discussion of what happens to people, their relationships, their perspective when they start to make change together. That together we can is also something that changes us as well as changes the world. Oh, I'd love you to talk about some of the gifts that you saw that have emerged from people's action that you document in the book. Well, in Australia, about 44% of Australians regularly report feeling lonely. It's a relative and self-assessment, you know, self-assessed thing. 
but there's been numerous studies done on loneliness in Australia. We've got rates of volunteering declining in Australia. Rates of union membership are declining in this country. And um, what I found through the stories and the people I spoke to was that they were finding that they were not only making a difference in technical terms, you know, inventing a new system or, um, you know, planting more trees. They are needing to form new connections and networks and their life has become richer as a result. I write about Yael Stone, who's an Australian actor. She's pretty famous. I didn't know she was famous until I bumped into her. She was considering splitting her life between the US to, you know, grow her performing career and Australia where her family is but once she really assessed what was most important to her after her climate moment she decided to stay stay in Australia which when you're you know the star of a you know top-hitting tv show Orange is the New Black you'd think why would you limit that growth and that you know ability to really you know lean into that but she has found that she's now more settled she told me she sees the seasons change she watches her plants grow um she's just had another baby she's more connected to her family so she finds she's finding life is richer and more more meaningful as a result of making that decision to just be in place and she's super active on climate as well which is amazing. So I think the potential that we have to reinvigorate our society and our connections and our relationships through this issue, as through many other issues, is immense. You know, when you work with people on something that you have common concern for and you share a value set and a set of principles on how you work together, then that becomes lasting friendships. And I've made friends through, you know, all of this incredible work I've had the immense privilege to do that will be my friends for the rest of my life, you know, because this work is meaningful and the people are fantastic. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's there's no reason to feel lonely if you're connected to this, to this work. And we have this kind of epidemic globally of, you know, competition, isolation, um, you know, technology-fueled overwork and... What's really important to us is usually not a lot of those things. What's important is connection, human relationships and working productively, you know, sharing our resources, playing our roles. So this was just a little tip of the um, iceberg, to use a terrible metaphor, um, to <laughs> look at climate change and what it can bring to our lives um, without detracting from the level of urgency and scale of action that's required. Yeah, Because it is actually profound this, that the kind of speaks a kind of transformation that's possible in this moment, that it's not only a moment we transform our energy system and the way in which we fuel our society, but actually the way in which we can fuel our relationships, that we can change our connection to each other. And it, it defies the logic that we're told all the time, right? That actually or, or, or buying more, doing more is is maybe not the answer. And that actually relationships with each other and relationships with the land, with the place is so much more important, so much more important than the busy fluff we're sold all the time. Mm, and I had the most brilliant few conversations with uh, a woman called Nola Turner-Jedson, who's a Wiradjuri woman, and she's um, self-described cultural linguist and she's rebuilding the kind of language map 
of Wiradjuri country, which is the second largest language group in Australia. And she not only taught me the kind of practices that can be useful in thinking about connection to place as much as people, you know, she talks about, you know, because of the totemic ancestry practices of First Nations peoples that I could never begin to fully comprehend, just connecting with an animal, an insect, a tree, like actually thinking about your place within an ecosystem is critical for us to feel more connected. But also she gave me permission to, to be connected to this place because, you know, my ancestry is colonial ancestry. You know, it's quite likely that people who are my ancestors caused like massive amounts of harm to First Nations peoples here. And so we ca- I carry personal guilt and shame for that. But, you know, shame is actually a tool of colonisers. And so her giving me permission to engage in that way and think about what kinds of, you know, almost spiritual practices you could pick up that are all about connection to the physical world and to people and thinking about your role and your responsibility was really transformational for me and a blessing and a gift in writing this. It's almost like this is a crisis and this is this is a very serious crisis, but it is almost also a moment for massive change, inviting us to reconsider and rethink so many of the problems, so many of the challenges, so many of the things that we ignore that that need to shift, like how we privilege and connect with and respect and lift up Indigenous cultural practices, for instance, that actually this is a moment for that too. This is a moment for that too. So, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. Like actually the kind of change that people are doing, that we are doing collectively is immense and and difficult and also filled with challenges that actually there are roadblocks in our way and you and you investigate these and you look at these in the book and I, I was really struck by how you have explored and looked at the question in particular around mental health and anxiety and how that how that can play a role in blocking and challenging us to uh, be able to act on climate change can you tell us a little bit more talk us through some of the obstacles for change and how we can potentially work through them how you've learned how you've explored how they can be worked through well there's one aspect around it which is just being able to emotionally face up to the crisis and you know there are rising levels of what climate psychologists prefer to call climate distress rather than climate anxiety or eco-anxiety even though those labels are reasonably interchangeable people think that they're unwell if they're emotionally responding to climate change but climate psychologists can reassure all of us that it is a rational response to the way the world's going it's rational. You know, if, if we weren't worried, there I'm would be attention. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there's a study that I reference in the book which is around, you know, young people and how particularly vulnerable they are to experiencing distressing emotions. So there was a study done in 2021 of 10,000 children and young people aged 16 to 25 across 10 countries so Australia, Brazil, Finland, France, India, Nigeria, the Philippines, Portugal, the UK and the US. And that found that 59% of people were very or extremely worried. Um, and there were, you know, feelings like being afraid, anxious, angry, powerless. There's also research that demonstrates that people are, particularly young people, are showing signs of pre-traumatic stress. So thinking about the issue is, is, so it's really big, big stuff. We're getting caught in these cycles of despair and 
one of the most fundamental things you can do is share how you're feeling with another person or in a group. And I, I did that by participating in the Good Grief program. Which, which is- was a beautiful story in the book. People should read that story. It was a great story, but I've, I've done some personal work on that. But um, Renee Lertzman, who is a globally renowned um, psychologist that looks at these issues, her research has exposed that if you are sharing your emotional and experiential response to climate change with other people, that helps free up the prefrontal cortex of your brain. And that's the part of the brain that it controls executive function, our ability to cre- be creative, solve problems, make decisions. And so just by engaging and not trying to push away your emotional response to climate change, that can remove a barrier. The Climate Compass research that the Sunrise Project um, has worked on for the last couple of years, that research has exposed that people, that some of the other barriers are really motivational. Often when you do social research, people say, I don't have the money, I don't have the time to engage in, you know, whatever pro-environmental behaviour. But the research exposed something quite different, which was mainly around motivation, knowing that this is the right thing for me to do at this point in time. And also around capability. People, particularly in those more alarmed categories, they believe they need to be a climate scientist or be someone like Oprah Winfrey to be able to make a big impact or to talk competently about this issue because it has been communicated in pretty technical terms a lot of the time over the last um, couple of decades. So what I was trying to get across in the book is that you can actually um, have more impact by talking to people who are about your emotional response to climate change and why you care about it because it's a fundamentally disarming process. So having the confidence to be able to have those types of conversations with people can actually get you a lot of a lot of progress and you're going to be the most influential person in your own networks. So what I love about this is what you're saying in the first instance Speaking about your emotional response helps you, right? It clears out your thinking brain, allows you to process and take stock of the situation you're in. But then secondly, it actually is a way for you to create a bridge and a connection with other people by being vulnerable, by being open, by 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 creating space in your thinking, you create space for a connection with other people. And we know we know this, right? Brene Brown, others have been talking about this for a long time, but but what you're identifying is how powerful that vulnerability can be in this space, in the climate space. Like even that is a powerful form of climate action because it could be the first step in allowing you and someone else to make change. And the research also shows that the concept of spillover effects is real and useful. So I think one of the traps we fall into as um, change makers is that we will judge other forms of change making and say that's not as good as our fault. Oh, oh, really? Does that happen? I'm shocked. Yeah, but notwithstanding, the research is showing up that spillover effects are real. And the challenge we have as change makers is that for people who are on their own climate journey or their own environmental journey, they're adopting pro-environmental behaviours that are often personal, they might be recycling or switching their bank or their super, then how do we actually find those people and bring them into an ecosystem of advocacy and outside systemic action that allows people to feel safe and supported by a community that wants them to contribute. And that's essentially what community organising is, is about, you know, supporting people as they go through that journey of, of discovery. But also we must be intentional about fueling that kind of collective action that can deliver those really big policy changes either by governments or, or by um, companies. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Like, 
I love Gandhi and Tolstoy, you know, whichever, take your pick, uh, about that idea of change yourself, change the world. And what you're, what you're looking at is, firstly, there's, there's a piece of work that happens in you, right? Change yourself, right? Take, what, take whatever action you, you, you need or you feel like you can access, right? And that is a personal thing. That is you becoming, accessing agency. But then there's the change the world piece. And in that, there are strategies and lessons and insights about what works and what works less well. In, in that space. And, and in a sense, your, your, your book is holding those two, two pieces together. Because when it comes to those bigger pieces, those bigger social change questions, there, there are things that are more powerful than others. It, it is more powerful to stop a coal-fired power station from spewing carbon into the air than having a keep cup. That is actually more powerful. But in this in this framework, it's it's not to say that the personal action isn't the stepping stone that can get you to that bigger action. But what I want, and I'm, I'm, I recognize the irony that I am about to do the thing that I just made fun of, which is in the book, in your reflections, like, have you got thoughts about which kinds of action you've, you've looked at so many different kinds of actions, so many different stories, what kinds of action are kinds of connection, kinds of, of work are more effective, are more powerful what ones, you know, what insights did you garner? Well, I'm probably going to be a bit biased here and say that energy is the main game, but it actually is. You know, Australia makes an outsized contribution to the world's carbon problem. We have a whole lot of carbon bombs in this country in terms of, you know, not only the coal power stations, but certainly the export coal and gas industries that we have. And so if you're looking for the biggest problem to go after, that's it. There's lots of ways to do that. And that's what we work on at the Sunrise Project is looking at, you know, developing strategies that can deliver that outsized impact as quickly as possible. But for me, policy change, industry change, and, you know, changing those who have the, are the biggest players in our economy will get these things done faster. But also we need to be balancing the transformation of our energy systems so that communities that will be impacted by fossil fuels leaving the system or will be impacted by renewables coming into the system, have choice and control and support for the way that that development will happen. So, you know, I think that's broadly in the energy sector and, you know, the energy sector when in its broader sense is the entire problem. There's deforestation, which is part of it, um, but really the lion's share is um, energy and transport. But I think more in a general sense, thinking about outcomes rather than outputs is really critical for us as change makers. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast will go, well, of course, but campaigners and change makers just love a really good tactic. We get really excited about talking about them. They're really fun. They can be really creative. But if we get too caught up on the tactic without thinking about what it will deliver, which decision maker it will influence, you know, then that's where we can get a little bit of course. So, yeah, I think how we apply some rigour to our strategies and our strategic thinking about outcomes first and then using tactics to test, like plant tactic planning to test against what our outcomes should be, I think that's where we start to crystallise around, well, actually, is this going to help us deliver outsized impact or is it going to be something that's just a bit of colour and movement that doesn't really shift anything? And... Yeah, that's a process for all of us as we're strategizing. And then one of the other things you mention in, in the book is that the 
beyond the specific topic matter, beyond the target, right, is that whatever you're working on, whether it's community garden or, or solar campaigns for renewables, is that if you are on the edge of those networks and connected to other networks, your um, capacity to accelerate and scale change is higher. Having people who are able to bridge between networks spreads an idea in a really powerful, powerful way. Mm, that was a big learning for me. So most people who are working in campaigns or communications particularly know that behaviour change comes through social proof, seeing people in your circles, they do a new thing. The rooftop solar revolution in Australia is a really great example of that, helped along with policy. People saw their neighbours doing it. There's, you know, now more than 300 million solar homes in Australia. So social proof, seeing other people doing the thing will make you change your behaviour or encourage you to do it get you to come to that decision point. But I looked at some of the work by Damon Santolo, who is a social scientist at Penn State University, and he's done a lot of research that looks at how behaviour change accelerates. And that accelerates when you've got people in one social network that are also a member of another social network, creating what he calls wide bridges. And the wider the bridges are, and the more of these overlapping networks there are, the more you will see behaviour leap from one network to another. And so the idea that you need to have a celebrity to, you know, sell your social change, actually his research also uncovered that celebrities can sometimes be you know, the last to adopt a behaviour because they don't want to risk their following. The same is of politicians. Politicians don't want to get too far ahead of their communities because if they do, they they perceive or they could actually lose their support and lose their position. And so the power of networks and the connections between them is a revelation um, that I think we can all learn from as um, change change agents because it allows us to think about, okay, who are the most networked people? They may not be the loudest people in the room, but they can be the people that can be the catalysts for um, making change. Right. Those people could be us, you know. They could be the people listening to this podcast. Actually, everybody, anybody is able to be that powerful, powerful person. It's not who you necessarily presume. That's exactly right. And it's very exciting because then you think about the potential of it and can we actually apply some strategy around that? Can we think about how we're building this kind of movement ecology that looks at how we are networking between each other as organisations and individuals on this mission, but also how are we looking at the people that we are engaging? How networked are they? Who are the potential leaders because of their position within networks? There's a lot of potential there and um, that's possibly where I'll be spending a lot of my time um, thinking and, you know, strategising over the next couple of years. Well, that was going to be my final question, right? You've written this book, you've submerged yourself in the power and capacity of people's capacity to to act this grassroots movement. So what's your hope? Like what's your sense and hope for change over the next five years? We've got this critical decade ahead of us. What do you think is possible? In Australia, I see the possibility for completely changing our economy. So we're onshoring um, second stage manufacturing, like power, powering our big industries to make steel and cement and aluminium, 
with powered by renewables. Like that is absolutely possible for this particular country um, and for many others around the world. I think it's, you know, it's a bit of a cliche these days to say that the technology is on our side, the economics are on our side and the politics are getting there. But I do think that all of this is coming to a catalyst point. This is the decade that matters. So I've been reflecting on my personal theory of change, which evolves as you go through your journey, but I just want more people and organisations, as many as possible, involved in this work, either in alliance, personally, through their networks, because that is what it's actually going to change, because that's actually what it's going to take to change everything, because climate change is, is everything. Yep. If you're shaking the foundations, everything that rests on them is affected too. We need everything to change for those foundations to to shift. Thank you for joining us, Claire. It's been a fantastic conversation. And for those who are listening who are interested, you should get a copy of that book, Together We Can. Thanks for having me on. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Claire O'Rourke's book is called Together We Can, and you can get it online or in your favourite bookshops. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. We're also on Twitter just at Changemakers99 and I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.